listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Out of the darkness into the light, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. Uh, on this episode, well, actually even before that, what is the thread that connects us to the story behind the story? Now, on this episode, the author of American Compromise, Craig Under, joins us. After their break, Ray Rickman tells us about crime fiction writer Rudolf Fischer and much more. And finally, we finish with just a thought, a commentary by the author, Darren Strauss. Well, it's a pleasure to see you again, Craig. It really is. Thank you for having me back. I appreciate it. So let me give the full title of the book, because there's a lot there. American Compromise, House of Trump, House of Putin, How the KGB Cultivated Donald Trump and Related Tales of Sex, Greed, Power, and Treachery. I'm a big fan of Hunter Thompson. He wrote a book many years ago, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail. So I'm thinking about how I'm shaping the conversation with you. Then I'm thinking there was the movie Sex, Lives, and Videotape. But I want to start someplace else, which I think is even more illuminating, but also very disturbing. And in the book, as I'm going through it, Opus Dei. So let's talk about the role of Opus Dei and how they are central to the American body politic and the culture at large. I don't think many people know about this. And I think one of the key elements of the book are you informing us about the role and the power and how it penetrates Americans many ways, but Opus Dei. So that's such the scene. Who are Opus Dei? Well, Opus Dei is a prelature within the uh, Catholic Church. It's um, a prelature is a little like a diocese, but it's not defined by geography, and it has its roots in Franco Spain. So it really has its roots in fascism, and it's very, very uh, uh, authoritarian in nature. It's very, very secretive. It's a secret society. So no one, if you, someone's in Opus Dei, they're not going to tell you. And they actually had dispensation to lie about it. And we have people like William Barr, who the, the former attorney general, right. who was said to have been in Opus Dei. He, he denied it, but he was on the, the board, excuse me, of the Catholic Information Center in Washington, which was the uh, operational center of Opus Dei in Washington, D.C. And it had real ties to Opus Dei. And what you started to see is the ascent of a very right-wing authoritarian movement tied to Catholicism uh, that uh, became very, very powerful in appointing judges, especially in the United States Supreme Court. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. It's a perfect segue. Thank you so much. I can tell you're the real pro in terms of handling these conversations. I mentioned how deeply they penetrated America, especially the courts. Now, we all watched the confirmation hearings for Brett Kavanaugh and what happened to Christine Blasey Ford. And, and you, I know where you fall on the spectrum, but it was really troubling what happened to her. She came out, I thought she was courageous and she got eviscerated during the hearings. I'm gonna mention a name. I'm gonna mention somebody called Leonard Leo. And did he stage manage, in a sense, the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. Right, well, I, I think he did. I mean, he's just an enormously powerful person that very few people have heard of because he has stage managed not just Brett Kavanaugh, but 
I, I believe the last six Republican appointees to the Supreme Court of the United States. And, uh, uh, and it goes back to Clarence Thomas in 1992, 1991. Um, so he's had enormous, he, he is both, uh, has ties to the, this right-wing Catholic movement I was talking about. Right. He, may not, he may not actually be a member of Opus Dei, I should be clear about that, but it, 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 there are these similar movements tied to it. And he's also, it was executive vice president, I believe in this title, of the Federalist Society. And the Federalist Society is enormously powerful. It's um, a deeply conservative society for lawyers. And if you're in law school, at, Harvard, Yale, or wherever, or Columbia, you know, it may help your career to join the Federalist Society, but it's a very conservative movement, and the operational part of it run out of Washington, D.C. by Leonard Leo essentially vets all the right-wing judicial appointments, and he has taken charge um, of, of all the last, uh, I think, six uh, Supreme Court judges from the Republican Party, and of course, they are all very much uh, anti-Roe v. Wade and so forth. You know, we hear this term all the time, this deep state, deep state, deep state. In a sense, and maybe I'm stretching this a little bit for your reaction, can Opus Dei, can the Federalist Society be a version of the deep state in America? Well, you know, the term deep state most recently has been used by conservatives to mock and dismiss uh, bureaucrats in the State Department, say that actually have real expertise, um, and you know, I, so I think that's been ridiculous. I think the uh, the people I talk about have enormous power, and they're very secretive. Um, and what's interesting is a lot of them aren't tied to the government. I don't think Leonard Leo has an appointment in the government. He is sort of self-appointed right. and has become enormously powerful within the uh, Federalist Society in, in terms of handling judicial appointees. Now, Craig Gunder is joining us for the podcast, Awful Periscope. His newest book is called American Compromise. And for 15 years, he was a contributing editor for Vanity Fair and a frequent television analyst. I've seen you many, many times. So let's go back to the title of the book. This compromise has been out there for a long time, at least for four years. But for the people that never heard about this term, exactly what is compromise? Well, compromise is a Russian word, and it really means compromising material. It's used uh, by the intelligence services. It goes back to the KGB under the old Soviet Union. And essentially, it comes in many different flavors, but the two biggest ones are sex and money, not surprisingly. Right. And, and essentially, it's like extortion or blackmail. It's got dirt they're holding over you. And they, they use it almost like mobsters. They don't say, uh, we're going to blackmail you. They say, you know, you, you may have a problem here. We've got these, there are these videos out there, and I don't think you want them released. We've got to work to make sure they don't get released. And then you start exchanging flavor, uh, favors with them. And in, in American Compromise, I go back more than 40 years to when Donald Trump who's then just an up-and-coming real estate developer, is first approached by the KGB and uh, sells, uh, I mean, he buys 200 TV sets for his newest project. It was uh, what's now the Grand Hyatt Hotel near Grand Central Station. And it turns out he's buying them from 
a front for Russian intelligence, for Soviet intelligence, a front for the KGB. And in doing so, they're opening the door uh, to having a long-term relationship with Trump, to uh, cultivating him as a Soviet asset. I want to follow up on that. But first, there's another phrase in the chapter in the book called the New Praetorian Guard. What is that about? Well, that's really about um, uh, the people we were talking about just a minute ago, Len Leonard Leo and uh, uh, Opus Dei and uh, this right-wing Catholic group that, that's been so powerful in putting these judges in, in place. You know, it's worth remembering uh, federal judgeships are uh, lifetime appointments. Right, right. So we're going to be living with this for a long, long time. And Trump not only took over the United States Supreme Court, but he uh, he uh, uh, appointed literally hundreds of federal judges, and they are all in this mold, this uh, very right-wing, authoritarian, uh, deeply conservative, anti-abortion uh, uh, mode. All right, so I want to go circle back to William Barr. This is the second time he's been attorney general. The first time was with uh, Bush 43. He has a philosophy called the unitary executive. Exactly what does that mean in terms of power? Well, it, it's an imperial view of the presidency. It's very authoritarian. It gives the president, it means the president can basically be above the law. And we, we saw Trump when Barr was in there um, become just one power after another. He was never really prosecuted by anyone. Uh, we started to see, I mean, I think you could see, I, I was kind of shocked that uh, Barr uh, quit so suddenly, uh, but it, it seems to suggest that he, he knew what was coming a bit on January 6th, and that maybe that was a bridge too far even for him. But prior to that, if you go back to the events in early June in Lafayette Square, yes. when there were Black Lives Matters uh, protesters right near the White House, um, what you saw then was Barr was attempting to use federal forces against uh, American citizens. And he was sort of uh, preparing, the, paving the way to use the Insurrection Act of 1807 as a way of, of using these troops to fight uh, liberal protesters. I want to look back on the course of your career as an author. Are most of your books kind of the central theme is abuse of power? Is, is that a fair assumption? Uh, pretty much. I mean, the, the last five have a really uh, a, a clearly defined theme, I think. Finally, I've begun to brand myself as an author. But, uh, I, and I'm going back to the early 2000s when I wrote House of Bush, House of Saud. And there, I mean, to me, you know, and obviously I wrote House of Trump, House of Putin, and the themes are similar. I write about unseen power, how power really works, not how it's, uh, most people think it works. And there's always something going on behind the scenes, and it generally has money. And what you can see over the course of these five books, I think all of them have to do with the Republican Party's war on democracy, and it's become increasingly clear. And you see... Uh, how they exploit loopholes in our system of government uh, to leverage power uh, far, you know, in ways that far exceed what we, we think most of us think is going on. 
You've been doing some appearances with a gentleman named Yuri Shevitz. I may mispronounce his name, but you'll tell me the correction. And I think about him in two different ways. I've been watching on television the, the Salisbury poisonings, about the scripples who were poisoned by the Russians. And I've been following the news about Navalny, Navalny who uh, he came, he didn't have to come back to Russia, he came back to Russia, he's, he's, he's gonna be re-imprisoned for a couple more years, but he's a very, very, he's controversial, but he's a very courageous human being in terms of what he's trying to, the issues he's trying to raise in Russia. So what is your connection to Yuri? Because you've done appearances with him and I think he's become a major source and he fascinates me. He's out in the open and he's still alive. Right, he is. You know, I think he's done some very courageous things, and that's one of the things that made me uh, comfortable with him as a, as a source. If you uh, followed the assassination of Alexander Litvinenko, yes. uh, who, who was poisoned by polonium, by and what was basically accepted to be uh, an assassination by the Russian Federation, by Vladimir Putin. Well, Litvinenko and Yuri were partners. They worked together. And Yuri helped dig up some of the most damaging information against Vladimir Putin ever. Uh, this was stuff that Litvinenko released. Litvinenko was poisoned for it by polonium, uh, radioactive polonium. And Yuri became the key witness in the uh, inquest done by the United Kingdom. And he actually fingered uh, by name Litvinenko's assassin. Um, Yuri's also testified before the United States Congress in 1999, and he told them for the first time, this was the first time I saw it, about all the dirty Russian money coming in from the Russian mafia and Russian oligarchs that was being laundered in the United States. Uh, I wrote about this in my previous book, uh, House of Trump, House of Putin, but Yuri had testified before Congress about the dangers of and how it would lead to enormous corruption and if people had listened to him uh, this 22 years ago, I think we would have avoided the entire Trump presidency. Um, so I, you know, he himself was a major in the KGB back in the Cold War. And in the 80s, he was stationed in Washington where he was recruiting people, Americans, for the Soviet Union. And what, what really, I mean, and the, the big thing about him to me, what he, um, I, I had many, many interviews with him, but the most astonishing revelation was when he went back to Russia in 1987, he went to KGB headquarters just outside of Moscow in Yasineva. And while he was there, uh, Donald Trump was making his first visit to Moscow. Right. And Yuri was indoctrinating uh, one of his, his recruits, the, one of the agents he'd recruited from the United States. But at the same time, uh, Donald Trump was being pumped full of KGB talking points. And when Trump went back to the United States uh, just a few weeks later, uh, Yuri was still in, in, uh, uh, in Moscow. Uh, and Trump, presumably at the urging of all these KGB people, was told, he was told, look, you've got brilliant ideas about foreign policy. Your ideas are so refreshing. Why don't you run for president? And Trump made an exploratory run for president. People forget this. Uh, starting in 1987, uh, George H.W. Bush was vice president then. He was the presumptive nominee. And in fact, he became the nominee and was elected. But Trump made a brief stab at it. 
and he took out an, a full-page ad in the New York Times, Washington Post, and so forth, with all these bizarre talking points that it turns out reflected everything the KGB wanted him to say. Meanwhile, Yuri was still back in Russia, and the KGB uh, released an internal memo uh, celebrating the acquisition of a new asset they'd recruited in the United right. States right. who was doing a disinformation operation. And they attached the full-page ad that was signed by Donald Trump. Now, he's been referred to as a useful idiot. He's not a useful idiot, but he was certainly, quote unquote, an asset for the KGB. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think he was definitely an asset. You know, one of the sticking points in all of this, people ask me a lot, well, what did Trump know? How much did he know about this? And I, I just hate <laughs> that because I can't get into his mind. I, I have no more access to it than anyone else. What you can see that I think is very interesting in that uh, the way Trump operates is he operates a bit like a mobster. And Michael Cohen has said that he talks in a code a lot. Yep. And he uh, there's a legal term called deliberate uh, willful ignorance or deliberate blindness. And so he just tunes out. I, I write about one uh, money laundering episode when a Russian mobster comes to Trump Tower. This is 1984. And he just has $6 million with him in cash and says, I'll take five condos. Well, Trump doesn't say, gee, where do you get all that money? He takes it. He doesn't ask questions. He knows not to ask questions. To ask questions is to get into trouble. But you can see those kind of transactions happen an awful lot with Trump. Trump did uh, sold 1,300 condos uh, through means that suggest money laundering. By that, I mean they were all cash transactions to anonymous entities. Now, another thing I want to explore is, well, there's a lot in this book, but you also let us become aware of the difference between counterintelligence and criminal acts. Give us a distinction because right now, you know, I'm thinking about the Mueller report, obviously. Right. Which right. Barr neutralized very, very well and handled it very well. But there's certain things in there that should have been much more about counterintelligence investigations. And we're thinking about, well, what criminal exposure may people involved in this have, people in the orbit of the Praetorian Guard and Donald Trump? So let's kind of flesh out the difference between counterintelligence and criminal acts. Right, this is something that I think most Americans were really unaware of, and it, it's not just an abstraction. There's a huge difference between a, a criminal investigation, which of course is designed to catch criminals and put them, prosecute them and put them in jail, and counterintelligence. And the Mueller investigation started off as an investigation by James Comey in the FBI, and it was supposed to be a counterintelligence investigation. And then when Mueller took over, it was still supposed to be an counterintelligence investigation, but somewhere along the line that got quashed. And it's a big difference because uh, a really well-designed intelligence operation, which is designed to subvert our national security, but the, the operations can be designed to operate within the law. And you see that happening a lot. One, one uh, episode I relate in the book concerns Donald Trump Jr. 
And in October of 2016, uh, Trump Jr. goes to Paris. He gives a speech before a think tank, and he's paid $50,000 or more. Uh, and all of that, uh, that's legal. It's everything I said is perfectly legal. Similarly, it's legal to buy TV sets from Russian immigrants or to consider building uh, a hotel in, in Moscow. But the, uh, in the case of uh, Donald Trump Jr., it turns out the think tank is a Russian front. And while he's giving his speech, he's being given talking points on what Vladimir Putin wants his father, to, Trump Sr., to do in the Middle East. And sure enough, a year later, uh, uh, President Trump withdraws American troops from Syria. He abandons our Kurdish allies, and he leaves Russia pretty much in control in Syria. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast, Arctic Periscope. My guest is Craig Unger talking about his latest book, American Compromise, which I've been tweeting about an awful lot because I think it deserves to be read by many, many Americans. And this is another part of the book that you give us a different twist on what happens in terms of history vis-a-vis -vis Israel, the United States, and the Soviet Republic. We thought it was a big deal that the Soviets allow Russian Jews to emigrate to Israel and the United States. I think it was a form of a Trojan horse. Do you want to well, amplify it? Absolutely. And I mean, I happen to be Jewish myself. So, I mean, I found this fascinating. I think some people are saying, how can you write that? But um, this is what happened. And, and if you go back to the 70s, uh, being a, a Jew in the Soviet Union was tough, and it was virtually impossible to leave the country. There was no immigration. And I think a very well-meaning bill was passed by the United States Congress that was known as the Jackson-Vanek uh, Amendment. And the idea was uh, uh, that the Soviet Union would only be treated as a fair trading partner if it allowed Jews to emigrate. Right. And I talked not just to Yuri Schwitz on this, but to another um, uh, former KGB agent, uh, General Oleg Kaluga. And he told me as soon as he heard, heard about this, he went to uh, Yuri Andropov, who was then head of the KGB. And he said, this is a great opportunity. We will let Jews leave, but only if they agree to spy for us. And that's what began to happen. And with, I mean, in this according to Yuri Schwitz, was very much the case when we talk about the, uh, uh, the owners uh, of the electronics store that was a KGB front, that they, they were Soviet Jews who got out early and they agreed to work for the KGB. And one way they worked was as a, so what is known as a spotter agent. The role was to spot potential new recruits, and they found someone named Donald Trump. I want to mention another book that I have a copy of called The Spy Masters. It's by Chris Whipple. You're probably aware of it. And you write about something going back to CIA at the end of the 1960s called The Monster Plot. And why that fascinates me, because there's a terrific movie called The Good Shepherd, starring Chris Cooper and uh, who's Chris Cooper and somebody Matt else. Matt Damon. Yeah. Yeah, De Niro, Robert De Niro directed it and was so, in it. I want to just because the, the history of the CIA fascinates me. Besides right. what you have in your book and what Chris Whipple has in his book, so Aldrich Ames 
and Robert Hansen, uh, you also in this book, and they're important to understand uh, um, sleeper agents in a sense and the damage they can do to the intelligence agencies in America. We're talking about the damage right now with Russian hacking and cyber warfare, but it goes way back. They're just more sophisticated now what they're doing and it's much more damaging. But let's kind of talk about Ames, Robert Hansen, and the damage they did to the CIA. Well, they, they did enormous damage, and, and they both did it for money. It was very, very clear. I mean, one thing Yuri was telling me was that back in the 50s and 60s, there were enough leftist Americans that some might spy for ideological reasons, might side with the Soviets. But in recent years, no, it's just for money. And they were both, Alder James and Robert Hansen, uh, were sort of walk-ins. They did it on their own initiative. Uh, they were not recruited so much as they said that we have the secrets, we want money, and, and let's start dealing. And Hansen was particularly interesting to me because uh, he was part of Opus Dei. That's and, right. And, and uh, it was a huge family with, I, I forget how many kids and so forth, but his brother-in-law, his wife's brother, was actually a speechwriter for William Barr during Barr's first term as attorney general. So you see these speeches Barr wrote and they are just uh, wild fire and brimstone speeches. And uh, meanwhile, sort of under his nose, uh, Robert Hansen, who is meant to protect the United States from being recruited. When he's he's part of the New York office for some time, he's supposed to keep Donald Trump from being recruited. That's what he's supposed to be doing. Well, he was also supposed to be searching for the mole. They knew there was a mole in the CIA. Right. And they, they assigned him the most stupidest job assignments in the world. Uh, so he went on for nearly 20 years or something. This is another thing that bothered me a lot about Barr. He transferred over 300 agents away from their responsibilities about following up with Russia to another part of the FBI. Why did he do that? Uh, you know, I kept, and this is one of the frustrating things of investigative reporting because it looks so much to me like Barr must have been on the take from the Russians, and yet I found absolutely nothing. And there were, um, you know, sort of, there really was a crack cocaine epidemic during that period. Yes. So he was transferring them there. Um, and, uh, you know, I, 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 I think the actions of Barr become more suspicious during his second uh, tenure as attorney general when he's working for Trump. And there you have the entire Justice Department comes from his law firm. I mean, one of, one of the interesting things I saw in all this was you have law firms like uh, uh, Kirkland and Ellis, which is Barr's uh, law firm, and Jones Day, which is another monumental law firm. And they both represent uh, powerful and extraordinarily wealthy uh, Russian oligarchs. And, you know, when you're a lawyer like that, making more than $10 million a year in some cases, and you're re representing Russian oligarchs, in, in effect, you're an intelligence agent of sort uh, for Vladimir Putin. I mean, those oligarchs are, they work for Vladimir Putin. There's just no other way to put it. All right, we have a few minutes left. I know you've got a lot of important phone calls coming up, but I do, earlier I mentioned uh, shaping the conversation, the interview, and I just kind of threw out tongue-in-cheek sex lives and videotapes. But I do want to uh, talk about briefly, because I know people are fascinated about this, 
the connection between Donald Trump and Jeffrey Epstein. There is a thread that runs from one to the other. And interesting, beyond that, when Epstein got out of jail and was trying to rehabilitate himself, he got very involved with his foundation in Silicon Valley. And the Russians are fascinated with Silicon Valley. Isn't that true? Absolutely. And I, I mean, one of Putin's famous quotes is that uh, artificial intelligence and supercomputers are for Putin what the, uh, the nuclear bomb was for, for uh, Joseph Stalin. And so he's been trying to penetrate that world for quite some time. And we see, of course, we, we know about uh, the solar winds hacking, which is enormous, and we really have not gotten to the bottom of it. And it's an immense uh, hacking uh, into all so thousands of government agencies. And, and I, you know, I think that's a scandal that's gonna be going on for years. We have another one that just took place we, don't, we know less about it, and, and it's, it's probably Russian, but I don't think definitively, and they've hacked Jones Day, the law firm that represented Donald Trump, and it uh, represented all sorts of Russian oligarchs as well. Uh, so that's an, uh, an, an important part of it. Uh, Trump and Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein, were close friends for about 15 years. That's according to Donald Trump. And uh, they met around 1987. Uh, you know, they, they went to a lot of parties together. They had one famous one where there were 28 young girls and just two guys, just the two of them. Uh, so they were sort of party animals. I mean, uh, what, you know, one of the more interesting things I found about Epstein is he was showing friends photos of Donald Trump uh, with, with uh, young girls. And it just leads to the question, since Epstein was videotaping so much, uh, including sexual activities of some of his guests, one had to wonder whether or not Epstein had compromised on Donald Trump himself. Right. But one of the more interesting, other interesting angles I followed about Epstein that has not been pursued has to do with Vladimir Putin's um, uh, uh, desire to, to get inside America's uh, high-tech infrastructure. And Putin famously has said that, uh, you know, whoever masters uh, artificial intelligence and supercomputers, uh, they will be masters of the world. And that to Putin, it was as important as the nuclear bomb was for Joseph Stalin. So this became uh, enormously important to Putin. And I found two women who were in Epstein's world who were tied to the tech sector. And it lo certainly looks like uh, the Russians were using uh, Epstein's operation as a way of insinuating themselves into the tech sector. That is, Epstein used to have salons for uh, some of the most powerful people in technology, Bill Gates, uh, Elon Musk, um, <coughs> many others, people who were professors at Harvard and MIT and were experts in uh, artificial intelligence like Marvin Minsky. And uh, there was a woman named Lana Posadieva right. who uh, has uh, just very interesting credentials uh, in, in, in Russia that strongly suggests she has ties to intelligence. There was also another woman <coughs> named Masha Drakova who was Epstein's publicist for a while. And Masha Drakova was quite famous as the head of a, a group called Nashi in Russia. Nashi is sort of the equivalent 
the, the, the Putin equivalent of the Hitler Youth Group. And uh, Masha was in a movie called Putin's Kiss. And it, it, part of the movie is they end up, she actually ends up being kissed by Putin and planting a big fat kiss on his face. She moved here and uh, became involved in Epstein's world. Uh, she's been a, a venture capitalist since then. And you have to wonder exactly what's going on there, whether uh, or not uh, the extent to which they're penetrating uh, Silicon Valley, uh, especially in view of the hacking we, we've learned about recently. Well, what's going on is Craig Unger, Unger's book, American Compromise. It's terrific. There's so much more in there. If I had two hours with you, I would take the whole two hours. But let's do it again because we, we more than scratched the surface. But this is a really important book in a time when we need to know, as I said before, early on, the story behind the story. So, Greg Unger, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast, Artful Periscope. Thank you, Larry. Great to be here. Good to see you again, my friend. After the break, we learn about a very interesting crime fiction writer from the 1930s, Rudolf Fischer, with my guest, Ray Rickman. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the Artful Periscope. We'll be right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. Recently become aware of a crime fiction writer named Rudolf Fischer. And I put a tweet out about that, and I got a response from some, somebody named Sean Carlson, because he had written an article about Rudolf Fischer. And he says, the person you need to talk to is Ray Rickman. He is the ultimate expert. And then I had a nice conversation with Mr. Rickman, and he has led a rich and full life. And I was fascinated when I started to read his bio. But also, we're going to talk about his life, and we're also going to talk about the crime fiction writer, Rudolf Fischer. So, Ray Rickman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Now, I want to talk about something first because there's a lot of connections here. You are the co-founder, executive director of Stages of Freedom. And I've been watching on PBS the series about the black church mm -hmm. and the series about Mr. Soul. And the reason why this interests me, because I didn't know anything about Rudolf Fischer. I'm reading the book right now. I didn't know anything about Eugene Ballard. The book is called Old Blood Runs Red. And mm -hmm. he's a fascinating man in terms of the history of African-American history. He was a pilot for the French in World War I. He also fought in World War II. And I'm getting the emails from your organization called Stages of Freedom. And recently, you did something on the black churches in Rhode Island. So let's touch upon that first, because I think it's really important and it's a direct connection. I just watched part one of Black Churches in, uh, in America. And this is really interesting, because I didn't know that. Everybody talks about Islam. Islam came with people who became slaves. Yep. They brought it to America, and it's a small rural island in South Carolina, where there is a cemetery where some of the original people who who were follow Islam are buried. And I'm learning this on the fly 
And this is why it's so important to have you here today because you have that connection between the big picture of Churches of America and also what you're doing in your organization in Rhode Island. Can you talk about that? Well, well first I wanna praise uh, Henry Louis Gates. Uh, it's stunning uh, four part series and hope you'll see the second uh, part uh, very soon. And he, uh, you know, I, I just praise uh, Professor Gates all the time because he has access, he has resources. You know, there are a hundred people who wanna do what he does, but only he does it. And so you see the black church um, in detail and with high production values to keep people interested. Yeah. And uh, I, uh, I, I talk to Professor Gates, you know, maybe every uh, talk, I email him every two or three weeks. And of course, twice in the last week about the black church and nothing but praise. And I want to urge every one of your um, connectors to uh, see it, public television, and it'll be available. It was on again last night. It may be on tonight. Yeah, I uh, watch but, it on, on New York area. It's, it's PBS Channel 13. And then we have another right. PBS channel, which is Channel 21. But I actually finished watching the first episode today. And mm -hmm. it brings tears to your eyes mm. about the connection and the job that he does and the pure yeah. joy that he does when he oh. did it. <laughs> now, do you know who the star is? All these people on this fabulous uh, work that he's done. And Henry Louis Gates is the star. Yes, you he know, is. I, I don't know if he set out to do that, but uh, I tell people, you know, I was a Baptist child. And as a teenager, we became Methodist. And then at, when I was 26 or seven, I became Episcopalian. And I've been Episcopalian for 46 years, 47 years. But I'm still sometimes a Baptist child. <laughs> and you can see that childhood religion in uh, Professor Gates. And he cares, you know, he's a man. Um, he, he is a, a Christian man and it's fascinating. Now we did uh, a two part series, two nights, uh, you know, Rhode Island in detail. And Rhode Island has some unbelievable um, attributes to the uh, creation of the black church. Right. And that is available. They come on stage. I, I'm sorry, that's not true. Um, Stages of Freedom will have it on our website uh, late next week. So March 1 or 2. They can come and see. And the Black Church is uh, created in Savannah, created a little in Charleston, of course, and Philadelphia, Boston, Providence, and Newport. Uh, and I watch people from Albany call and complain. I'm leaving them out. But the church was being created. And the question is, you know, who put up the first building? Who had the first, uh, or, you know, certification from the state? And Philadelphia gets a lot of credit, but it was very interesting what Professor Gates did. He took it south. Now, remember, 80, 90% of all Black people are in the south, and they're building a church. Um, let me say this last thing about this. We have the African-American, uh, there's no American in it. We have the African um, meeting house. Right. And it's created in 1819, 1820, 1821. And it is unique because it seats 600 people in the church. 
but it has a basement that's 12 and a half feet tall and has its own entrance. And that basement is a school. And of course, in Rhode Island, there's no public school for white people, only this school for black people. And you want to talk about causing a disturbance. But I love to tell people this. Black people are always saving America. I think we just saved America in the November election. No, Georgia and uh, Pennsylvania and Michigan and, you know, black folks are in 12 places where they are, you know, two to 10 percent of the vote. And nobody for president ever gets more than 10 percent unless they're in Utah someplace. And so we're the swing, but we're more than the swing. We're the deciders. And so you see these uh, black folks doing these unique things. And the example I was giving you, they create a school, quasi-public school for black children. You don't have to pay if you don't have any money. That makes it public. And the white folks have a fit. This is 1821. And Rhode Island votes public school in 1826 because of jealousy that black people have a school. So we've done it more than once. (laughs) Can I ask you something? I didn't think about this until you talked about when you watch Mr. Gates go into some of these churches, you see the pure joy on his face. He's yes. keeping into the history and all the ghosts that are there in the past. Yes. When you yes. walk into the church you're talking about in Rhode Island, yes. what is your visceral reaction? Well, in Congan Street Baptist Church, you can see it. It's the oldest church. It's uh, 1876. The uh, 1821 a church burnt down and most of the earlier the three or four earlier black churches are all gone uh two of them torn down by by brown university um you know i always wish i were present you know you, you show up 10 20 years too late and you can't join the fight and uh, but now i'm not sure i could have saved bethel because one of their lawyers was thurgood marshall and he couldn't save it I always like to give him credit and say he couldn't save it because he quit being their legal counsel uh, because he got um, appointed to the federal bench and federal judges can't do uh, legal cases. So I always think, you know, if he if if Lyndon Johnson hadn't appointed him to the bench, (laughs) Bethel would still be standing. Um, We have a fabulous, wonderful, complicated history, uh, both in Rhode Island and in the nation when it comes to black people. And Rhode Island's unique, as you know, this is the center of slavery in America. More slave ships than any other state uh, actually combined. Uh, 60% of all slave ships were uh, paid for, fostered, captained by Rhode Islanders. Now, I love history because the people who control the nation, who control the educational system, they write it off. They write it away. Right. You know, th- th- there aren't two percent of your uh, viewer listeners who know that Rhode Island was the center of slavery in America. Uh, there are people who do not know that Yale University, uh, Harvard University, certainly Brown University, William and Mary, on and on and on. Almost all of these Ivies have slave money. Uh, Brown University has Southern plantation slave money that built it. And then we're talking about building. The slaves got out and built the first buildings. 
And again, you've heard a lot about the White House and the United States Capitol uh, from uh, Vice President Harris and others. Uh, in fact, I was thrilled to hear President Biden talking about Black people building the Capitol of the United States. Uh, so we're in, this, we're in this moment, and I, I wish we pay attention and learn and then share. I want to share something about your personal story, and then we'll talk about Rudolf Fischer, because there's so much here. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast, Awful Periscope. We're taping, recording this in the back end of February for Black History Month. And the problem is we tend to, all these programs come online, and then March comes, and a lot of stuff is, you know, we move on to other things. I don't want to move on to other things. What I do want to talk about you and you in terms of your personal history. You march as a teenager with James and Meredith in Sunflower County in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. That is a story in itself. When I got a hold of your bio, I said, there's so much about you that is so important, that is so special. There are a lot of big names out there. John Lewis, Meredith, I can go up and down the line. Diane Nash, who I just learned about recently mm-hmm. with another podcast that I did. So I want you to talk about, please, your experience as a teenager with James Meredith? Well, for years, I, I, I never forgot it because I all but got killed in Mississippi. It's nothing you forget. And you don't put it aside, but you don't get up you know, every two months and tell people about it. And so it's been a few years. And uh, someone, I'm uh, Herb Boyd, a uh, former Detroiter like myself, came to Brown University and had uh, 40 minutes to talk and spent seven or eight of the minutes talking about me. And first I was embarrassed and then I was interested. (laughs) They weren't things that I'd forgotten, but he elevated me, you know, in Providence, in this small hometown of mine, new hometown. And I went out and constructed, wrote, a play. It's called The Civil Rights Kid. And I just did it therapeutically, I think. But after I got it done, I told someone at Bryant University about it, and he invited me out to do it. It's a one-man show. And I have baseball caps. The first baseball cap, I'm 15. The second one, I'm 16. That's how I de-age myself with baseball caps and the color. And so I have four baseball caps for this one-man play. And it really, uh, if, if it weren't me, I would have been so impressed at a kid doing this. And it's called the Civil Rights Kid because, uh, and I'll tell you the end of the story real briefly. Um, I mean, Mississippi was horrendous and there are thousand, uh, probably 10,000 black people who can tell the same story, sadly, uh, about being brutalized and jail and beaten and hospitalized and just blood every place and escaping with my life. But when I came home to Detroit, Charles C. Davis, the congressman, who really paid for me to go, um, he organized uh, a, a gathering on a Saturday afternoon at Greater Macedonia Church. And a uh, whole family went, we had our own row. And I was keynote speaker. And surprisingly, uh, Congressman Diggs talked for three or four minutes, did not 
you know, dominate the event. And uh, at the end of his talk, he turned and he pointed to me, and now we will hear from the civil rights kid. So he gave me that name. And then I gave a talk. I couldn't remember a word of it if I had to, except they applauded 25 times. It's the black church and I'd done something heroic. And uh, this is 1966 and it really, um, it was an incredible moment. I'd never spoken to 2,200 people in my life and it was something. And then at the end of my talk, the minister got up and he said, and I'll never forget it. He said, you know, I had trouble sleeping last night. God called me and told me about the civil rights kid. And of course I told Congressman Diggs and Congressman Diggs leans over to me loud enough for the minister to hear and says, mm, I think it was the other way around, but I don't remember God calling me directly. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, all of life is like that. Um, I loved it. I, I loved being of service. I loved, and, and again, this is three weeks later, the bandages are off. Right. And I, I have two scars. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not shy about my good looks fading because I'm not sure I had any, but... You do. You uh, do. Uh, no, no. In the middle of my head, my hair is receding. It's, it's going away slowly. I've been doing it for two years. And I don't mind that. On this side of my head and on that side of my head, I have scars left from Sunflower County, Mississippi. And they will soon be showing. Um... It's fat, and I really have to wear the baseball cap. But it is fascinating to be beaten in such a way that your skull is cracked in two different places. And I and 10,000 other people, Black, Jewish, regular old white folks, all went to the South and were treated like this. And that's um, why you belong in the same discussion as John Lewis. I want to mention one other thing because I'm very well, well, no, no, let, let me interrupt you. No, I don't. <laughs> but go, uh, go ahead. Well, that's my opinions. We're going to roll with that. I'm very proud of my brother, who is a lawyer, and went to Haiti to do pro bono work to help out Haiti. Mm. And I'm very proud of him. And I'm also, this is, a, this is the second time we're having a conversation, but I'm very proud of you, and I'll tell you why. In 2003, you founded adopt a doctor nonprofit mm -hmm. for five mm -hmm. years provided financial assistance to 18 medical doctors in four of the world's most poorest nations this speaks volumes volumes about who you are as a human being i salute you i applaud you so briefly before we get to rudolph fisher talk about how you set this up and why well, you set it up so um, we, we all need to give, and we need to give generously and broadly. And I find that a few people do, and a few other people give, you know, Christmas time or something. And very rich people write checks, but never as big as they could. And I, um, I've made a commitment that I will always be doing something substantial. Never, never, you know, I meet people and they tell me what they did in the soup kitchen seven years ago. 
And I'm in praise of it, but what have you done for the last six years? And so when I'm done with one project, I adopt another. And I make that sure that the project that I was doing, if it isn't finished, and almost nothing's ever finished, that it has some continuity. So uh, Adopt a Doctor has a fund at the Rhode Island Foundation endowment, and that money goes to Doctors Without Borders. Um, I one day watched Scott Haley on CBS Evening yes. News yes. talking about four small black children drowning. And I, I won't go back and tell you the Rhode Island connection to that, but a child drowned and I promised the mother I'd do something about it because black children drown five and a half times as often as white kids. And I hadn't got around to it. And I have a list of like four major promises and I do them. I don't, I, I, I dislike people who say I'm going to do this and then they use excuses. So I figured out how to get an endowment together and quit doing my African work. Also in Africa, things changed. Liberia had two civil wars. All of a sudden you don't have a civil war. Doctors are fleeing, not because they're, I'm sorry, three fourths of them want a better life. The others are fleeing because someone offered to kill them yesterday because they treated the wrong soldier. And all of a sudden things go from E minus to D plus in Liberia, maybe C minus. I don't want to overstate it. And that frees me to go elsewhere. And that is to help uh, African-American children, mainly in Rhode Island, a few in Massachusetts, uh, we're going to teach five or 6,000 children how to swim. And that's what I do with half of every day. Uh, it is my, I, I think I got it all from my mother. You know, you have to have busy hands in improving the world. Now, uh, in case you don't want me to, I'm going to do it, any, I'm going to do it real quick before you catch me. Uh, I believe every single human being, should you know take an audit on Friday afternoon on the way home and say what have I done this week? You know what soup kitchen did I raise twenty five dollars for? Uh, what school did I go over and plant a tree? And I don't think we do it because if we did, we would turn the world upside down. And in Black Lives Matters time, this whole right. uh, ten months, I've been bothered with signs in yards people talking about Black Lives Matter. And the income of the NAACP in Rhode Island has not gone up. You know, I can just tell you that people are talking and not doing it. And I, I hate to be so critical, but I want the world to change during my lifetime. I, I want, uh, you know, what happened in the last year is Black life expectancies dropped a year and a half at a time in which Black Lives Matters, that is absurd. Less than 10% of the cities have changed their police policing, 10%. We've got to do better. I, you know, I tell people all the time, every day in the morning, I go to work from five to eight o'clock uh, downtown Providence, and I sneak down with no people. I have a 50-foot rule when I come out of the office. And if you come out after eight, <laughs> you can't stay 50 feet from other people, even with your, with your mask. But every morning before, at eight o'clock, I call up two people and I ask them for money. We're opening an African-American museum. 
and I asked one person for money for that and the other person for money for our swimming program. And I'm as direct, and, and people say to me, um, why are you asking me? I said, because you have it. <laughs> because you care. I told a man last Friday, because you have a Black Lives Matter sign in your yard. <laughs> and that's how I think all of us who are doing can do more. And all of us who are not doing can begin to do. And again, people should only do what they're able. You know, some people can write a thousand dollar check and some people every once in a while, a kid, I mean, kid, eight year old sends us a five dollar check. And I, I, I dance because it, the child is it, that's his allowance he gave us. All right. Here's what I'm going to do when this podcast is available and we'll get it up as soon as possible. I think this is very, very important because you've elevated this whole podcast this day. That in a previous episode, I did an interview with Gail Fisher Stewart, yes. who edited the book Black Lives Matter, and is a Black Episcopalian minister in D.C. So I was honored to have her. I'm honored to have you. So I'm going to try to put the word out wherever I can. With the time remaining, because the, in my little world, in my very small pond, I am known for <laughs> having access to uh, many, many famous and not so famous crime fiction writers, not, not just in the USA, but mm -hmm. also in other countries. And I will reference one that he said that if you want to know about a country, a region, an area, read crime fiction. That's Ian Rankin. I'm quoting, paraphrasing Ian Rankin. So when somebody picks up the book by <laughs> Rudolf Fischer called The Conjure Man Dies, and I'll yeah. mention this because it came to me because he is acknowledged as the first African-American crime fiction writer. So I'm throwing right. a lot out to you, but I think this is a really important book. I'm about a third of the way through it. Mm -hmm. And there's some passages in this book because I am a student of how you take one word, go to the next word, go to mm -hmm. the next word and how it connects. And I stop and I'm saying, I wish I could have wrote that. I wish I could yes. have said that. Yes. And there are yes. passages in this book written, yes. I believe, in the early 1930s that Rudolf Fisher does or mm. did, actually. Yeah. So, you know, I, I can't get through a half a page of James Baldwin without the pencil and paper out. And I hadn't thought of Rudolf Fisher that way. It's just grand. And I hadn't thought of it that way because... I, you know, I've read uh, The Walls of Jericho, which is his first book, and then The Conjure Man Does, second book, and it's 1932. And I always think, you know, what was he doing when he was writing it? And of course, he's busy being a physician. And uh, he dies early because they don't know about radiation like they're supposed to know and which they don't learn until, you know, seven or eight years after he dies. But this is an incredible writer. And I say all the time, and I'm so careful because I don't want to offend anybody <laughs> in terms of black writers. But uh, you, you know, you have Zora Neale Hurston at this time. You certainly have Langston Hughes at this time. You have, you know, I can name all 10 of the Harlem Renaissance people. And they have all risen to acclaim. Uh, there was a time when they were, uh, you know, known by few and cared for by probably fewer. 
And then sometime in the 1960s, people began to think, but Hughes lived long enough to become, you know, the black poet in America. And then people would read his simple books, which are so stunning. I mean, they really, you talk about folklore pretending to be short stories. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And Rudolf Fischer, I believe, got lost because Rudolf Fischer dies in the 30s. And you're not supposed to do that. You know, you're not supposed to die when you have other people living and writing. And I think that's what happened to him. And then you see in the 60s, uh, University of Michigan and others uh, bringing his books out again. Uh, but they're not, he doesn't have advocates. So uh, you look at some of those books, uh, um, Conjure Man's reprinted five times, and the runs are five to 7,000 books. So you're talking 25,000 copies of a book, and sadly, take no offense, anybody, but two-thirds of them go to college students for class, and they're not reading it and then sharing it. They're reading it and saying, ooh, got through that. <laughs> That's what college students do generally with a book. So he doesn't have the advocacy that he deserves. Uh, we're in the process in Rhode Island of trying to turn him into a substantial local literary figure, hoping that that might be his beginning. I talked to a movie producer recently about Conjure Man Dies. Now that's all you need is a movie, <laughs> you yeah. know, that, that two million people see and then uh, five million people didn't see it, but they think they did or they talk about it. And that's what needs to happen to Rudolf Fischer. Uh, we probably need the movie. Now here's the last thing I'm gonna ask you. I've asked other writers and artists and storytellers in the past. If you could put your epitaph on your tombstone, uh -huh. which would address <laughs> your legacy, because you have an interesting legacy, what would that be? So I have a problem. You know, my mother always demanded public modesty from us, from her children. And, you know, my mother wasn't one of those folks. My mother became a Methodist, so she, she wasn't one of those folks who thought you'd get your... Uh, your comeuppance and your goodness in heaven. You know, okay. she thought, you know, may, maybe you have enough social security, you'd be okay in old age. Um, I am an adopted son of Rhode Island. And I have decided um, not to put, you know, deputy secretary of state or any of that stuff on a gravestone. I've decided Ray Rickman and my dates adopted son of Providence. Now, as you know, uh, Lovecraft uh, has the slogan, you know, I am Providence. Right. So that's, that, that's taken. Okay. <laughs> and, I've all, and I've always thought that's arrogant. <laughs> you know, you don't think arrogant on your gravestone. <laughs> so I am an adopted son of providence i care a great deal about this place this state i care about the nation and the world well you know what i can't say enough about how much having you on this podcast means to me and i'm sure 
what it's going to mean to my audience. This is a special, very in my mind, a very special edition of Artful Periscope. My guest has been Ray Whitman. Ray, uh, thank you so much, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Be well. Uh, you too. Uh, after the break, with just the thoughts and commentary, author Darren Strauss joins us. We'll be right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope, with just a thought. Here's author Darren Strauss. When I was growing up, the, the line from Barry Goldwater, extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice, moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue, was known to be problematic. That was the, the uh, motto by which he ran for president. And he got killed because people seemed to realize back then, extremism, even in defense of liberty, was a vice. And moderation is a virtue. And that is not where we are today. The world is on fire. Just look around the world. Modi in India stamped, stampeded to power, writing anti-democratic nationalism. Democracy in Myanmar appears to have ended despite Aang's siding with the military on its ethnic cleansing. All the pro-democracy candidates in Hong Kong have been jailed. And anti the anti-Semitism at home of the Trump base was on display to anyone who cared to look, not just in January, but from his coddling of David Duke in Charlottesville, from the Nazi propaganda in the 1-6 riot, to the Jewish conspiracies voiced openly by the new Congresswoman from Georgia. Uh, and, I, and I started to think that it's not just the right, and I say this as a member of the left. I have two friends recently who were canceled uh, so to speak, on Twitter by cancel culture for things that they were said to have said or done that I don't think they did. Um, and I've been thinking that social media makes it impossible to police the spread of what the, the German phrase Dolschenglende, which is something I'm pronouncing wrong, I'm sure, but it's, it's the it's the stab in the back, back myth. It's the myth that, it's a phrase that uh, came to power or came to be when Hitler came to power, where you can find reason to believe or to get your neighbor to believe that he's been stabbed in the back by his neighbor. And I think you're never gonna get rid of the fascist element in this country, but you can tamp it down. You can maybe achieve fascist herd immunity if the government offers people material benefits, which is why all through our history, fascist parties have tried to destroy the government's ability to do this. Um, I think the aggrievement of people makes for a more fascist friendly pro uh, population. And I think social media thrives on aggrievement. People nowadays not only hate other tribes, they live in such a constant state of fear that a deluge of animosity will rain down on, on some other group gives them great relief and joy. Um, and I think that's why we're getting it in these hard times from left uh, and from right. I think that uh, in, 
if you take uh, a global pandemic, you add Twitter, we're screwed. And this is a sort of rambling plea, I guess, uh, for a sane, moderate, central way of looking at things. And again, I say this as someone who's a lefty, but I, but I don't know, um, I don't know the way forward in this country if we don't stop reaching for the extremes on either side. Um, you know, seven people I've talked to recently, literally seven, I wrote down the, the names, uh, have looked into real estate overseas. Uh, and I don't, I don't, I think it's because a lot of people said they don't find that they don't see a home for themselves in this, in this country anymore, which is sad. Um, and I, I still believe in this country, but I think the only way to do it, the only way forward for this country is to, is to find a way free of social media. I know it's a, it makes me sound old fashioned and, um, and out of touch, but I think social media is killing this country. Everyone talks about fake news and I think that's a real problem too, but social media has changed the way we think, I believe, and it's made us attack each other. And so if we could just stop attacking each other for a second, I think we find a way forward. And so that's my, that's my two cents. With just a thought, that was Darren Strauss. Till next time, I'm Larry Davidson, and bye-bye. Davidson's website for more interesting content at LarryDavidsonsProductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. She tired to her kitchen chair.